what's your personal uh, longevity strategy? I understand that uh, there are lots of research. There are a lot of biohackers who yeah. take 50 pills a day. Yeah, I have no idea what that's doing. It's a fun question to try to answer. <laughs> For example, cryonics. Yeah, I, I'm skeptical about that. Hi, I'm Greg Mastrida, a rationalist and transhumanist blogger. And today, here with me is Brian Kennedy, professor of biochemistry director of Center for Healthy Aging of National University of Singapore. Hi, Brian. Thanks for Hi. coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. Can you please explain to the audience what it is exactly that you're doing in the area of aging? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm active in a lot of roles. I sort of have one foot in the academic side and one foot in the private sector. So, because I believe ultimately to slow aging, we need a partnership between different sectors of society to try to bring about radical change. Um, on the academic side, where my research has been almost exclusively in preclinical models, so everything from yeast cells to worms to flies, and more recently we've done a lot of mouse studies. Um, but uh, what I went to Singapore for was really to start to take some of these interventions that we think slow aging and test them in human clinical studies. So the Center for Healthy Aging at National University of Singapore is really directed at combining good basic research with clinical approaches. What we really want to do is validate that some of these interventions slow human aging. So we're thinking hard about how to do that. Uh, can you please give examples? Uh, what exactly do you do with humans nowadays? Yeah, I mean, we have three clinical studies that we're starting. One of them is really a biomarker study. Uh, uh, as you may know, there are a number of different biomarkers of human aging that have been promoted in recent years. Um, one of the problems, though, is we don't know how they relate to each other. And so you can take things like methylation clock or facial pattern aging or uh, complete blood count data or, or more standard measures of aging like pulse wave velocity, um, uh, uh, inflama inflammatory cytokine panels. Uh, all of these measure some component of aging, but we don't know how they relate to each other. So we're, the first study we're doing is to take a limited number of individuals at different ages, measure all these different biomarkers simultaneously, and try to understand if they're redundant or if they're telling us unique things about aging. And then we're following that up with intervention studies. And so we'll be testing two different studies start to start with. One is exercise. The other one is alpha-ketoglutarate, which is a natural product that's been recently reported to slow aging in animal models. Um, but that's only the beginning of the story. Uh, I'm relatively agnostic to what interventions we should test and also uh, which biomarkers we should use. My goals are to stratify which interventions work the best um, and then try to develop a composite biomarker of aging that we can, for under $200, calculate an individual's biologic age. If we can combine those two strategies, I think we can come up with a plan in Singapore that actually slows aging and keeps people healthy longer. And that's critical for Singapore, given the demographic story there where there's so many older people. Yeah, because of high level of life? It's a long lifespan, but it's also very low birth rate, uh, low immigration. You know, immigration, immigrants are usually young. They come to work. But that's very limited in Singapore due to space constraints. Yeah. It's a small yeah. island. So... Uh, you know, they have more and more older people. There's only going to be two working people for every retired person in 10 years. And that's not a recipe for economic success. So the idea is to keep people working longer. But to do that, you have to keep them healthy longer. And that's what, where we come in. That's great that the state has the incentive to 
uh, yeah, to help those research? Well, you know, I think that, you know, what every... The problem you have with a lot of governments is that they're not progressive anymore. If you look at the United States government, they're, they're, they don't think more than two months in advance. Trying to start a program that's not going to come to fruition for 10 years is very difficult for someone that gets elected every two years. Um, Singapore, you know, the same uh, political party has been in power for a long time, uh, and they think very progressively. So they're, they're not afraid of putting money into something that may take 10 years to, to re get a return on investment. Okay. That's yeah. what I really like about Singapore. They're not afraid to take long-term strategies to meet their major challenges. Great. Um, have there been any preliminary findings with your research? Um, We're just getting started, so it took a little bit of time to build up the infrastructure to do the clinical studies, and now we have taken a few months to go through the approval process, and so I think next month we'll be starting to generate clinical data. Now, we have a lot of preclinical research going on there as well, and we're already getting data there. And we're partnering with companies as well. We're working with Jero, for instance, which is a, a company that started in Russia and, and is very interested in both biomarkers of aging and developing interventions. Uh, and uh, we're uh, talking a lot in, uh, about how to measure aging with Centaura. So again, I, I'm not a pure academic. I'm trying to find partnerships between academic and private sector that really generate the fastest um, response. And by response, I mean slowing human aging. You mentioned uh, measuring biological age of a person. Uh, I've heard that there are already some technologists out there for yeah. that. Uh, which one would you recommend? Um, I think they're different candidate measures of aging now, and they all have strengths and weaknesses. Probably the best one right now is the methylation clock, or uh, the epigenetic clock, which measures the methylation state of your DNA. Uh, and that was generated with a sort of deep data sets and lots of people trying to use AI to optimize prediction of chronologic age. So Steve Horvath and... Greg Hannon and, and um, Vadim Gladyshev in, in animal models has really developed that assay. It seems to be relatively accurate. Um, and so we're, we think that's a good one, but there are also uh, facial pattern recognition biomarker of aging that's been developed by Jackie Han in China. Uh, she works with us in Singapore as well. Um, data from complete blood counts and activity measures and all kinds of other things. Uh, I don't know that one single measure is going to be the best thing at the end of the day. I think it's going to be probably a composite of things. But we're very mindful of keeping you know, a couple of key features in mind. One, it has to be economical. If it costs me $2,000 to measure someone's biologic age, I can't scale that to the population. I, I, I'm not just interested in making Bill Gates live longer. I want something that's that's a, a, a solution for the population of Singapore and, and, the, and the rest of the globe, too. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we can't be taking muscle biopsies of everybody. You know, and so if you were going to predict what tissue you might measure aging, muscle might be a good one. But people don't volunteer for muscle biopsies. They're expensive. They take medical professionals. We can't scale that. So everything we do, we want to be scalable. Uh, Yeah, I don't want $100,000 solutions. I want affordable solutions. So, so nowadays, uh, how much does it cost uh, the uh, testing on the basis of the first model that you mentioned? So methylation clock, it's getting a lot cheaper, and it depends on your volume and your relationship to the companies involved. But 
Uh, I think it's becoming feasible to do this for around $500 or less. Um, and that was much cheaper than it was two years ago. So that's another you know, advantage of technologies in, in this biomedical sector is they start out being expensive and then they get cheaper. I mean, the, yeah, like the a genome sequence. $3 billion for yeah. the first one and like a few hundred dollars now for the, the you know, one millionth one or whatever it is. So it's, uh, that's good. Uh, but my bigger concern is whether one thing is going to accurately measure aging or not. You know, we may have to do two or three different kinds of assays to really measure it. And then there's a different level that we want to go to, which is how do we measure personalized aging? So most of the strategies right now are trying to figure out what's general about aging so we can apply one method to measure aging in everybody. But we all know that people age differently. And so ultimately we have to figure out how to incorporate that personalized component of aging into these measures. And I don't think there's a clear, clearly defined way to do that. So that's going to take some research. What's your stance on uh, what aging is? I know that there are several approaches. Some uh, scientists say that uh, aging is uh, just a gradual deterioration, mm -hmm. epigenetics. Uh, others say that it's, it's a bit more complicated than simply deteriorating the systems. Yeah. What's your approach? I think certainly damage and deterioration is a component of it. I'm not sure it's the entire component, but I think of it a little bit differently. Um, I think of it as a, a network, a homeostatic network. In other words, sure, things are happening as you get older, but your body adapts in, 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 to that, and uh, it responds to that, it adjusts to that. And so you might be 45 or 50 years old, and obviously you can't run a 100-meter dash as fast as you used to, but you don't feel old. You're still functional, you're still highly productive, um, and, and you're not sick yet. The problem is that eventually enough things go wrong, and that could be damage, it could be alterations in signaling pathways, that you can't maintain that homeostasis anymore. And when that happens, you spin out of control, and depending on what direction you spin in, you start getting diseases of aging. And our argument is that we shouldn't wait until you're sick, until we treat you. That's expensive and not that effective. Um, we should be figuring out how you're aging and intervene before you get sick and keep you healthy. Uh, and so that's really a revolution to medicine because medicine is not really preventative in nature. I mean, there is a little bit of prevention, of course. Everybody tells you to exercise and whatever. But in, in general, what happens is you don't go to the doctor until you get sick. And then you go to the doctor. The doctor then develops high-cost treatments that keep you sick for a long time. And so, yeah. and so essentially what we want to do is change that paradigm and figure out how to keep you healthy. Uh, what's your personal uh, longevity strategy? I understand that uh, uh, there has lots been, of research. There has been lots of research, <laughs> and some some uh, experts uh, say conflicting things. Some some yeah. say that uh, nowadays we can't do anything to live longer. We should wait until more yeah, discoveries are made. Aubrey de Grey, for example, has been yeah. on my show. Yeah. He he is doing nothing uh, specific to live longer. Others yeah. uh, biohackers yeah. uh, do stuff. What do you do? Yeah, I guess I'm in the middle of that equation. I, I was having lunch with Aubrey about two or three weeks ago in Singapore, and we were discussing this. Um, I think that lifestyle interventions work. So there's very good data on exercise, at least with regard to median life expectancy and health span. There's very good data on exercise. I don't know about maximum lifespan. Um, healthy diet, and I don't mean calorie restriction. I mean getting caloric intake down 
to what FDA recommends because most people eat way too much, both in U.S. and Russia. So eating yeah. eating uh, below this threshold. Yeah, I think that's important and a good balance of macronutrients, that sort of thing. Um, also, maintaining stress levels. And I, I really like mindfulness approaches. I don't think it matters whether you choose uh, yoga or or you know meditation or whatever else i think the the important thing is to be mindful of what's going on do you uh, meditate i don't meditate you know I, if i get most of my mindfulness by running you know because when i get into a long run it clears my head and i can just you know think about things um i like i said i don't think the method matters i think the important thing is that you're aware of what's going on so that when you get stressed you can recognize that so many people go through life and you can, you know them, you see them, you can tell they're stressed, but they don't know they're stressed because they're not aware of what's going on. And I think that's the important, important importance of mindfulness. And then sleep quality is an, another factor. And those things all probably matter. And there are things you can do now. You may not want to do them, but there are things you can do now. Now, if we go beyond that to look at small molecules and drugs and supplements, you know, I'm involved with a company that markets supplements. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I've been taking that one, see what happens. Um, what do you take? Uh, it's, a, the, uh, it's a combination of alpha-ketoglutarate and vitamin A. It's a product produced by this company called PDL Health. Um, but I, I, I'm not trying to pitch that over another thing. I, I think that these, most of these natural products are safe. Um, and, uh, and the purpose? In animal models, they slow aging and reduce frailty. Uh, the question is, uh, does that translate to humans? And we're doing the clinical studies in humans right now. We don't have the data back yet, but... Um, so it's not yet FDA approved or something? It's natural product. It doesn't have to be FDA approved. Yeah. So with, with products that are generally regarded as safe or grass, um, they can be marketed, but you have to be careful what claims you put on the label. And so mm -hmm. there's a whole you know, business strategy to that. But I think that like, nicotinamide riboside, nicotinamide mononucleotide, those are things that improve NAD levels. Uh, they're on the market now by other companies. Um, the, the data in animal models is good. I don't think we have all the data in humans yet, and it kind of depends on whether you want to go ahead and try these things or whether you want to wait and see until more clinical data comes in. Um, and then there are drugs, and I, I think I'm more hesitant about recommending drugs because rapamycin has the biggest effect on aging in animal models, and it looks promising in humans too, but it also does cause side effects, and so you have to be careful how that's dosed and... And so I think it's a little bit dangerous for people to be taking that without medical supervision. Do you take it? No, I don't take it. Um, the other thing I would say is that when you start combining lots of different things, you get unpredictable results. Yeah. And so I, I meet a lot of people that are taking 10 or 12 different things. And yeah, I a lot of biohackers who yeah. take 50 pills a day. Yeah, I have no idea what that's doing. Uh, because when we start combining different things in mouse, we, have, we might take two different things and on their own, extend lifespan and extend health span, but when you put them together, they cancel each other out. And I can't really predict what that, what, what's going to happen. So when, when somebody says, I'm taking this, this, and this, what's it doing? I really don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. So um, I do believe, however, I'm not against this approach of, of biohacking. I think that people, informed people should be able to make informed decisions. And, and, and our job is to educate people give them the facts and let them make responsible decisions about what they think is best for their own health. Now, that doesn't mean we should be encouraging people to take dangerous drugs, but I think in, in a reasonably safe sector, I, people, it's okay for people to, 
to make their own decisions, especially if they're informed and they know what choices they're making. So. Um, you mentioned uh, calorie intake restriction. Yeah. What do you think about intermittent fasting? It's very yeah. popular nowadays uh, in Silicon Valley, for example. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, I think that there's very good data on like the 5-2 diet, which is you eat normally five days a week and you fast for two days. There's also time-restricted feeding, which a lot of people do, which is you eat in a 12-hour window or maybe an eight-hour window each day. That seems to be something that people can adopt, and I think it's relatively healthy. Um, Has there been any proven meta-studies of that? Well, and, and then there's a, a company called El Nutra that I'm actually involved with, full disclosure, but they make diets that mimic fasting. And so you can buy this box of food, and it's five days' worth of food, and you eat the, 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 on the directions that they give you, and you do this once a month or once every two months, All of them, at least in small clinical studies, look very promising. And, and Done on humans? On humans, yeah. I, I don't know that one works better than the other. I think that probably the best strategy is to, if you want to try that, is to think about you know, each of these different approaches and figure out what works best for you. But the clinical data looks quite promising. Um, we don't have biomarker data for aging yet, but we do have... Uh, studies for related to disease like auto autoimmune diseases which are high inflammatory component it works well there um, it reduces chemotherapy side effects in some cases and there's a range of other studies around diabetes so I, 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 my, I, I don't know that I can say with a hundred percent surety that uh, these things are helpful but I really I, I think there's a accumulating amount of data that suggests there's benefits to strategies for intermittent fasting. And, and importantly, it's easier to do that than it, it is to do calorie restriction. I think that people that do calorie restriction find it very difficult to do. And Count calories like all the eating time. Eating like 1,400 yeah. calories a day or something like that. And there's also side effects associated with that. So the fasting, I think there's I don't know of any side effects associated with it. So, But I think it's still important to note that people should consult with a doctor before trying yeah. intermittent fasting. Some people have digestive tract diseases yeah. that uh, don't uh, allow them to experiment yeah. with this stuff. I, I think no intervention is going to work well for everyone. You know, it's, I don't care what it is, it's not going to work for everybody. I mean, maybe some level of exercise will work for everybody. But... Um, Everyone has, you know, personalized components not only to their aging but in terms of how their body functions. They're lactose intolerant. They're not lactose intolerant. They, they might have Crohn's disease, you know, and, and those could all can have impacts on how you change your diet. So optimally you would go to a physician and discuss with them what might be best for you. Part of the problem with that, though, is most general practitioners don't have a deep knowledge of aging. And so if you go to them and say, I'm going to do intermittent fasting to slow aging, they're going to look at you like you have three eyes or something. Mm -hmm. So it, the, the problem, it's easy to say you should go get advice before you do things, and I agree with that, but it's not always easy for people to get good advice around aging because most of the clinical world doesn't really understand aging very well. So. Yeah, but still, the, there are... Uh, qualified doctors who There are. And, start uh, involving in these yeah. areas. And certainly if you want to get you know, into like different kinds of supplements and pills, it's certainly good to have professional advice to, for that. I, I would fully recommend that. <laughs> um, some uh, transhumanists and biohackers uh, make a decision to not drink alcohol at all. Yeah. Uh, others like you say that moderate uh, alcohol uh, consumption it may be even good for your health. Yeah. 
So, uh, are there any significant meta studies justifying? There, there have been a lot of studies. Uh, some of them suggest benefits. Uh, some of them suggest no benefit. Uh, I think there's some consensus around the idea that low to moderate alcohol intake is good for cardiovascular health. Um, one of the problems is that we don't have a mechanism. We don't really know why it might be good, and that's why we've gone back to do mouse studies here. We have mice on 10% ethanol in the drinking water, and, and we're looking at them on normal diet and high-fat diet, and trying to understand what's going on with aging, because we want to try to figure out mechanism. If we can identify the mechanism, it'll be easier to see whether that's invoked in humans and how that relates to aging. Um, the other thing I would say is that I just talked about no intervention is going to work in everybody. Yeah. And I think ethanol is a great example of that. So Some people have an uh, alcoholism gene. Yeah, exactly. Like if you have addictive personality, you shouldn't be drinking it. If you have a risk of breast cancer or prostate cancer, we know alcohol increases those risks. You shouldn't be drinking it. If you can manage it, it doesn't, you're not addicted to it, you don't have those risks, it might be good for you. Uh, What is moderate? It's... Uh, The probably it depends on the study, but probably around two to three drinks a day in, in men, no more than that. Uh, and sure. uh, one three two, drinks, dr a drink is a glass of wine or a cocktail or, or a what? A glass of wine, a cocktail, and a shot of something have more or less the same amount of alcohol, roughly. So, yeah, one, by drink I mean any of those. Uh, and uh, one to two drinks in women. Women are less body weight. Um, we're interestingly in the animal studies, we're seeing sex-specific effects. So the It seems like the alcohol at the dose we're giving the mice protects the males better than the females. So we're not sure why that is. That's an interesting point to follow on our research. So, um, so it, it's, uh, I'm, uh, I'm moderately, I, I guess what I would say is that I tend to favor the idea that it is protective, but you have to be cautious with it because, like I said, if you are prone to addiction, you know, and, and you definitely a lot of alcohol is bad and it can far offset any benefits you would get from the low dose. So it's something to be careful with. So. I see. Uh, what's uh, your estimation of how things will progress with longevity research? Mm. What's the timeline for further breakthroughs? I think that's what makes the field so fun today is that nobody has any idea how to answer that question. There's so many different ideas. There's different uh, academic research programs. There's a whole range of different companies that have started that are doing different things. And it feels like the, it's that early stage of a sector where all the crazy things are happening tomorrow may be different than today. You look at the ideas that are being pursued, and I would bet on some and not others, but the next scientist you talk to would bet on others and not the ones I'd bet on. So nobody really knows what's going to work yet. And uh, um, that's kind of what makes it fun from a research perspective. The uh, timeline, I think that we'll see validation of some interventions in the next few years, uh, and uh, at least in small-scale to moderate-scale studies. I don't know if we'll have a you know, FDA-approved you know, recommended intervention by that time. Um, and then some of the more radical things, we, I think it's great that companies are pursuing them and academics are pursuing them. Uh, we just don't know which ones are going to work and what the timeline on that. And, you know, how much stem cell replacement can that affect aging? It's an interesting model. We just don't know yet. We don't even know in animals whether that works. So uh, trying to predict how the timeline to get to humans is unclear. 
I, I think things happen faster than we might realize, though, especially if we can get the resources invested in the aging field to really drive this forward. What, what's really rate limiting right now is the, the money to get to drive the projects forward. And it's getting better. There is investment in the private sector now, but we need to still ramp that up a lot to make things go as fast as possible. We have to make it mainstream. We have to make it mainstream. And, and I think that we have to convince people that aging is modifiable. It's not some inevitable process that you can't do anything about. We already know we can do something about it. We already know in humans you can do something about it. We're living a lot longer, a lot healthier now than we did 50 years ago. And uh, there's no reason that, that trend can't continue to improve. Uh, but people have to realize that just because they're not sick doesn't mean they shouldn't do anything. It's about staying healthy. It's not about staying sick. And uh, I tell people that, you know, that my goal is not to get Alzheimer's and then get treated for it. My goal is not to get Alzheimer's. And that means intervening early, trying to slow down the biggest risk factor, which is aging. Do you think all this will one day lead to the elimination of death? Well, um, that, I, first of all, I think the answer to that is almost certainly no, because you can still get hit by a bus. I mean, you know, so... So, um, but that's a trivial answer to your question. I, I think what you're really saying is, if we eradicate aging, will that, you know, will we live forever? Um, yeah. The, I, I, no one knows the answer to that question. And, and, and Aubrey and I can argue about that. You know, he's talked about escape velocity and, and uh, negligible senescence. And I think we need people like him that are thinking very futuristic. Uh, I, I like talking to him about it. I don't think we have any idea whether that's possible or not. And, uh, you know, uh, but Dean Gladyshev brought up today the idea that, you know, the evolution has created a structure in us that's good for fitness and helps us reproduce and, uh, and stay competitive in an in a, in a environment of natural selection. But it may limit the lifespan that we can achieve as an organism because of the structural constraints that are placed upon how we develop. Uh, and so if that's the case, then... It may be really hard to get beyond that limit, uh, and it, it may take radical structural change to do that. Right now, we don't know how to do that. So I, I'm, I, I'm confident in saying that we'll be able to extend health span modestly, maybe even you know, pretty significantly. Uh, whether we can get all the way to negligible aging is, and I don't think anybody can really answer that question. But it, it's a fun question to try to answer. <laughs> so. Yeah. By significantly, you mean how long? Well, you know, I think we can get 30% extension in mice now and health span and lifespan. Um, so and uh, that would be a great goal to try to achieve in here. That's a big effect. years. I mean, think years. about the think about the effects of of doing that. That's profound change. In, in That's staggering. In, yeah, in human society, uh, mostly for the good, I think. But the, I don't even know that we can predict the changes that would happen with that. So, you know, we like to talk about immortality, but even that change is hard to predict what would come from it. And uh, so, um, my goal is to take the interventions that are most likely to work today, validate that they work, try to get the best benefit we can, and then be working with people to develop the more radical interventions for down the road. And, and uh, if Aubrey proves right, then I'm happy with that. <laughs> But I don't think we can really know at this point. So. What are your thoughts on alternative means uh, of uh, reaching immortality or long life, such as, for example, cryonics? 
Yeah, I, I'm skeptical about that because I, I just think that I was in a panel discussion with somebody who does cryogenics a few years ago, and um, yeah, you think about it, it's. I'm not saying it can't work, but it just seems really far-fetched to me that you're going to take someone who's dead for a couple hours, freeze them, and then find some way to restore them and, and compensate for all the degradation that happened you know, before they got frozen. And, and so I, I suggested to the guy that he might want to do the freezing before he dies <laughs> if he wants to have the best chance of it working. I was a bit facetious there, but... Um, I certainly am not an expert on that biology, but I, at this point I'm skeptical that the technology exists. Uh, By the way, cryonists say that uh, those people, they are patients, they are not yeah. dead, because death is a process. So uh, it's a process of deterioration of uh, structures in your body, in your brain. So Sounds semantic to me. I, 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 I do think, though, that you know, there's really interesting research on uh, putting people in very low metabolic states. Um, and people are thinking about that for like surgical outcomes and keeping people alive uh, in in very you know damaged state after like car accidents and stuff like that. Uh, but that may be a way for long term preservation as well. And you know, people think about it for space travel, but it could be a yeah. way to preserve people that are you'd have no cure for uh, for a long time until you can develop cures or something like that. So. That technology interests me, but it's very early days. I don't know what's possible yet. What about digital immortality? What yeah, about uploading like, your mind? Uh, somebody has to convince me that if you upload all the, my, my, the information in my brain into a computer, that that's me. It doesn't sound like me. It sounds like agree? somebody that has all the. It sounds like somebody that has all the experience and in, in intellectual capacity that I do, but there seems like a different person than me. Why? Well, why should it be the same person? Because. Uh, We, would, you, would there be two brain? of you if you did that? Well, what if you kill yourself when you upload? Then uh, there is only one of you left. No, but let's say you don't. So let's say you could... Then uh, this creates a problem because there are two copies of you. But that they're not you. To me, there are two different copies that are identical. And, but uh, our cells change all the time, right? When, yeah. when we fall asleep, we wake up, it's a different person if we uh, count the cells and... The, One, one dies. Uh, We may need quantum mechanics to, to, to explain this, this conundrum. It's an interesting, it's interesting thought process. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert on how far away technically we are from doing something like that, but I, I'm still trying to get my you know, 20th century brain around what it would mean. <laughs> <laughs> given, given the choice, would you upload your mind? Like given the choice, I would not get old. Yeah, but uh, still, uh, even in uh, your optimistic uh, uh, forecast, you say that uh, reaching immortality is uh, unlikely in the near future. Yeah. So I'm 52. If I can slow aging, you know, I'll still be relatively healthy at 80, and maybe by then we'll have other strategies. So mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I, I think that um, I don't worry about aging right now. The funny thing is, when I started doing aging research, I didn't even care about slowing aging. I, I just looked around in graduate school and I thought, this is the most unknown biologic question <laughs> I can find. I just want to understand the biology. And if it, if it applies to human aging and becomes translational, that's fine, but that's not why I'm doing it. And gradually over time, with the demographic shift in the population, the need to do something about aging, the, uh, and, and a better understanding of what aging was, that it might be possible to intervene, then now I've become much more translational. And so I'm much... 
I'm very focused on slowing human aging now, but when I started it, it wasn't really even a thought process in my brain. So, um, you know, if we can make it till 30 years from now, I don't, I, there's no way to know what might be possible. So I'm not giving up on uh, immortality. I'm just, so you're optimistic. I'm, I think you have to be optimistic in this field. Why not? You know, what, what good are you going to get by saying the glass is half empty? <laughs> um, what do you think um, is the main area where we could improve nowadays? So uh, the most, um, where are the most perspectives in current aging? No, I think the science is in a good place. Uh, I think, you know, I, I mentioned this, that I think that 20, 30 years ago, everybody was arguing what causes aging, can we slow aging? Some people were saying it's impossible to change the rate of aging. Uh, should we slow aging? Those kinds of debates were going on at meetings all the time. And now, you know, you bring five or six of us together and we have pretty general consensus that yes, it's possible. Um, we have a rough idea what the pathways that are important for aging are. Um, and so I think the field has really achieved sort of a quasi-consensus on what to do. Uh, But the general public doesn't. So that's what I was coming to. So what we lack is resources and public awareness. And so the funding is still not there and anywhere near the capacity it needs to be there. I mean, you think about it, the amount of money that goes into cancer research relative to aging is, you know, an order of magnitude, probably maybe two orders of magnitude. And uh, um, that shouldn't be that way. There's 100% of people age and only 30% get cancer. Why are we doing this? And we have to change that perception. And that's a public awareness question. And it's also a question for investment. And it's a question for philanthropy. Just because your father had died of some disease like Parkinson's disease doesn't mean you should give your money to Parkinson's disease. You're not likely to get that anyway, and your kids aren't that likely to get it unless you have a rare mutation that makes you very prone. Most people don't. So maybe you should uh, retarget where you give your money to something that affects every disease, and that would be aging. And, and so that mindset is still not in the general population as much as we've been trying. And, You know, we need help from people like you to get that information out there because it, I, I really think that this is the most important thing we can do for medical care in this century. And we have to generate that awareness and that re- those resources to make it happen. I absolutely agree with you. This has been Must Reader. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and to my blog on Medium. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. My pleasure.